Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Today's guest is Dean Alioto, writer and director of the groundbreaking found footage horror film UFO Abduction, which also became known as The McPherson Tape. The film tells the story of a family whose house is surrounded by alien creatures one night, and while the panicked people inside the house become more and more frightened and try to deal with the situation, a family member records the entire event with a 1980s-style home video camera. Dean made the film on a shoestring budget in 1989, while he was still in his mid-twenties. And while there have been several found footage and pseudo-documentary precursors since the 1960s, what is striking about UFO abduction is how much it anticipates the aesthetic and the storytelling that was popularized 10 years later by The Blair Witch Project and other found footage horror films. In our interview, Dean Eliotto talks about the making of this unusual pioneering film and which strategies he used to make the material more authentic. He talks about the initial reactions to the film and he relates the incredible and hilarious story of how the film disappeared, then reappeared and was thought to be a real recording of an actual close encounter of the third kind, which then, through many strange coincidences, led to the production of a remake called Alien Abduction Incident at Lake County, which was released in 1998, again directed by Dean. We also talk about some of Dean's other projects, including his latest horror film Portal and some of his upcoming productions. The interview was conducted in connection with our German language podcast Lichtspielplatz. So if you speak German, please visit lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 68, which features an in-depth discussion of UFO abduction and alien abduction and many other found footage horror films. Also, make sure to listen to our interviews with found footage filmmakers Ted Nicolaou, Brian Leslie, Stefan Avalos and Ron Bonk here on Talking Pictures. If you enjoy my conversation with Dean Aliotto, please visit TalkingPicturesPodcast.com to check out more interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is director Dean Aliotto. Um, so, Dean, before we start talking about the UFO abduction, um, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background. Um, is there a, sort of an inciting event in your life that made you want to become a filmmaker? Sorry, I don't understand Austrian, so you're going to have to speak in English. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, how did I get started? Um, geez, it's kind of a, a desperate tale. Um, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, um, at an early age. Uh, I had seen Scorsese films and, and Spielberg films, but especially when I saw, uh, E.T., mm -hmm. uh, that did it for me. because I had, I was, um, I'm a little bit dyslexic. And so I ended up dropping out of high school before I got, uh, kicked out. And my mother was cool enough to say, okay, no worries. You're gonna have to get a job. But, um, you know, I, I don't worry about you. I know you'll you'll figure something out. And so I I thought I want to do something in filmmaking, acting, right? I wasn't sure. And and then when I saw E.T. like six months later, um, that knocked me on, on my ass because I was the jacked up middle kid who dreamed of aliens, had the older brother was the jock. My mother was, you know, the single mom raising three kids. So the parallels were so um definitive um 
for me uh, that it it instead of feeling like sometimes it can be a tragedy when you grow up like that, broken home, mm-hmm. um, it celebrated it and made it magical. And I did not expect that. And I came home, and I told my mother, I said, I'm going to be a filmmaker. And so um, that set me on my journey. Um, but it's funny that it was that film because it was dealing with aliens. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't expect to, to, you know, to become joined at the hip with um, the phenomenon uh, extraterrestrials, etc. But when I turned 24 and I dropped out, of, I actually went back to night school and I finished off high school. And then I got into uh, San Francisco State University. But again, because of my dyslexia, I had to drop out after the first uh, end of the first semester because they were using trig and some other things um, for astronomy. And my list of all, all the books I had to read was was way too long in the syllabus. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking a year off, saving up enough money and taking film classes at USC. So I did that for a semester and then came back and was hell bent to make my first film before I turned 25 because Spielberg had made his before he was 25. And so did Scorsese and, and, um, you know, Orson Welles, everyone. And so I had a buddy of mine that said, look, I'll give you 6,500 bucks to make a movie. And I gave a smart ask reply which is i could only make a home video with something like that mm. and um and then i read um uh, whitley streber's book communion about his supposed real life um adventures with uh extraterrestrials and it scared the hell out of me more than any other you know stephen king uh novel and um i thought god how can i convey this what would be the best way to do this if i could make this into a movie uh this type of tail into a movie and then i went back to that thought of oh if i did it as a home video then it it would feel like it's immediate it's happening now and shot from one of the home one of the family members um, home video camera it would feel like uh you were in it again as it's happening and you could sense it and so i i called back my buddy and i said let's do it and so um we pulled together a cast and crew of um improv actors um uh, locally and this is san francisco bay area and uh primarily shot it in one night and so i thought you know well that was it made my first film i can now relax and let's see if i can get it distributed and then that became a whole other crazy ass story but uh that's kind of the impetus of of how i got into uh, uh filmmaking and how um the mcpherson tape which was called ufo abduction mm-hmm. um UFO K-77, that was the original title. Mm-hmm. I read on your homepage that before you uh, did your first film that you worked as an assistant on uh, some Hollywood movies with um, Spielberg and Oliver Stone, Clint Eastwood. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, sure. So I guess the first one would have been um, would have been the Clint Eastwood film uh, it was the last Dirty Harry film called The Deadpool, not mm-hmm. to be mistaken with the new Deadpool movies. Um, I'm actually in the movie. You can see me jogging in place in a couple um, oh. <laughs> uh, scenes in the background next to Eastwood. But I was um, a PA doing crowd control, like second AD type stuff. And then um, I worked on The Doors, Oliver Stone's um, mm-hmm. film, the Haight-Ashbury uh, section. And um, I think I worked a little bit at the Fillmore. Uh, and that was insane because Val Kilmer is is playing Jim Morrison, 
And I remember visiting the set on a, the Fillmore Theater. And I said to the um, first AD, I go, how does the sound guy sync up the playback so well so that Val can lip sync to it? And he goes, oh, there's no lip syncing. Val is actually singing. He's actually singing. And I, it knocked me on my ass because it was dead on sounded just like uh, um, uh, Jim Morrison. And then I did some um, still photography behind the st stills um, for um, briefly for uh, Indiana Jones for a day, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, and I got okay. a chance to see um, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford and got a picture of those guys um, with uh, Steven Spielberg and um, uh, George... Um, Lucas, uh, and that was I still numb to me. I, I, I feel like I had an out of body experience. I didn't expect <laughs> um, Sean Connery to be so formidable, like in his day when he was, you know, golden Goldfinger. Mm -hmm. um, he must have just, you know, that's the thing I love about him. He's, he looked like he could kill someone. Mm -hmm. Roger Moore, not so much. You mm -hmm. know, Pierce Brown, not so much. Daniel Craig, yes, yes, but, yeah, <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So that was great to see my idols, um, you know, working their, you know, working their craft. Um, so um, yeah, that was inspirational. And I was a, I was a PA for five years, and that was intentional. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to go from being a PA to a director, and that sounds kind of goofy, but my reasoning behind it was, if I work as a PA, I can work in every single department. And I can get a chance to learn what each of those departments do. The only one I didn't work in was in makeup, um, but from wardrobe to camera. So I had a real strong sense of of what it takes, not just the the mechanics of it, but the political, you know, the, the, the hierarchy or how things come together and who's in charge, et cetera. So I actually ended up pretty much doing that because the the film that I made after those five years was um, the McPherson tape. And it's interesting because when I read this, um, I mean, Spielberg and Stone, those are all big productions and real, you know, like huge Hollywood productions. Um, and then to go from this to make this really very, very small, low budget film that has such a completely different aesthetic um, <laughs> than what you've seen. I think that must have been like a real change of pace. Yeah, in fact, um, I was kind of embarrassed by it, not kind of. Um, very, because it, it was a really good lesson for me because it was servicing the budget and more importantly, servicing the story. The story mm -hmm. couldn't be shot in a Spielbergian way at all in order for it to have any kind of effect of what I was trying to do. Um, there had been no Blair Witch. Blair Witch came 10 years later. Um, and so there was no reference for this. It was just, in my mind, the, the word gimmick kept mm -hmm. coming up this is a gimmick that will allow me to make my first film but i got into it i didn't treat it disrespectful it was just this is just too weird for anyone to get and then the first person who saw it was the casting director and i showed it to her and can i swear on this show sure absolutely okay. she fucking hated it <laughs> she hated it and she had no problem telling me because mm -hmm. her son was in it. her son played uh jason oh um, let's see yeah, the uh, the middle child, uh, the college kid. And um, she was like, everyone's talking over each other. It's handheld. It's like not lit well. Um, this is just, uh, I don't know what to say. And I promptly stopped showing it. 
Um, mm-hmm. We had a, a friends and family screening, I think, either, either before or after, must have been after. And I figured, well, fa- family and friends, they're going to be nice, you know, and they were. Uh, I also had Jacques Vallée there. And Jacques Vallée, if you've seen Close Encounters, um, there's a rumor that Francois Truffaut was based on Jacques Vallée because Jacques mm-hmm. was the assistant uh, or worked hand in hand with uh, J. Allen Hynek, who was in charge, one of the guys in charge of Project Blue Book. So um, anyway, um, it um, but it was actually funny because uh, I haven't told this story before. Um, there was a, uh, a buddy of mine who showed up late with his girlfriend. And so they missed my introduction of the film mm-hmm. and it played this is in San Francisco and it played. And at the end of it, she was white face ashen. And she was wondering why are people laughing and clapping? I don't understand. And I said, I said, ah, I said, you didn't like it. And she says, no, these people are missing. <laughs> why are, why isn't anyone concerned? These people encountered something fantastical and, and, and his, her her boyfriend, my buddy, kept laughing, and he just got the giggles. And he and I had to tell her the whole thing. See this guy over here? He's in the movie. These are all actors. So that was the first inkling that that maybe this kind of worked with what I was t- intending to do. But when we went out to sell it, I had people just throwing their car keys at me. You know, distributors saying, "Get the hell out of my office! Don't show up here unless you're a real movie." Um, yeah, it was pretty brutal. Because you know it's it's good to be kind of ahead of your time, but not a decade yeah. before you. Not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It must it must have seemed like a totally experimental art project. Uh, I don't know what to call it at the time. Did you have any um, sort of reference point in terms of I don't know maybe fake documentaries or make believe stuff that um, you were um, aware of that that sort of played into it? Not really. Um, I mean, this. I mean, the first thing that popped to my head because I'm raking through my brain right now and going, "What was out before then?" The only thing I thing I can think of, but that's a satire, and we should talk about that because there's people will say, "Oh, you make mockumentaries," and it's like I've never made a mockumentary. Mm-hmm. Fomentaries are fake documentaries, mm-hmm. but um, but this is Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that was made definitely before. I think that was like 82 or something. Um, that's a mockumentary. Mm-hmm. That's mocking the, you know, in a comedic thing, that's mocking. So, um, but I didn't really think ab- about that. I just knew that when I think of like footage that you watch on news, it's always, you know, someone was on the scene and they had, you know, a camera, it was a camera crew, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I think I was kind of thinking in those terms that, This would be like someone reporting from the scene of the crime. But I don't I wasn't referencing any film that I'm aware of. Yeah. It's interesting when you watch the film. I mean, one of the very early scenes, and this has become such a big found footage staple that people in the scene are talking about the guy who's recording this. So they're talking into the camera and they mention, oh, why are you recording this? And so on. Um, and then UFO um, abduction, um, it seems that like such a bigger scene, like they spend so much more time establishing the fact that there is a cameraman. And I think one of the characters even says it's not a movie. I found that very interesting that um, apparently you needed to set up the fact that this is a recording, like a live recording of um, a, 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 like a home camera um, much more strongly at that point. 
Yeah, well, you know, you need to have, even back then, I knew that I had to have a reason for this camera to be on the whole time. Um, and if a kid gets a new toy, he's going to be using the heck out of it. And, and to underscore that, um, and to let the audience know that you're inside the mind of a six-year-old, which I played uh, uh, Michael Van Hees, the the, um, the character, the camera guy. Um, I thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to videotape food. And I didn't intend to do that. We never rehearsed that. Mm -hmm. But when the cake was coming out and the, and the pasta was coming out and everything, I just remember going, I must I would be videotaping this. I would be checking out the lens. I would be zooming in. I would be focusing on someone next to me, their ear, because he's discovering this toy. And so, um, you know, I, I wanted to have that where it was, I, I didn't, I did know this, that people have a tendency, if you have a camera, like cameramen talk about this all the time, where if they were behind a camera, like in a war torn situation, they become, uh, I guess, fearless because mm -hmm. they're like, I've got my camera and I'm photographing this. And what I'm doing here is more important. Like I remember I, I, in, in Mexico one time did parasailing where they take you up and you've got like a parachute and you were, they fly you around a speedboat, but they drop, drop you off. And it was terrifying, but I had my camera with me. So I'm like, I'm here to document this. And if something happens to me, this will live on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that camera is a shield for Michael. So as the shit goes down, he's there recording it uh, as in, this is going to be the evidence. This is going to be something that proves this, but this is also going to be something that, that keeps me from getting hurt because I'm, I'm, you know, uh, capturing this and can hide behind it. And, um, and it's real, I'm making this real, but of course, you know, the brothers at, at points and get fed up and, you know, it's not until the mother tells him, put that goddamn camera down or I'm going to wrap it around your neck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he finally put it down. <laughs> yeah. That's the hardest part of these, by the way, is to come up with a conceit of why are they continuing to film? Mm. You know, what is uh, the reason? And and some found footage films do that fantastically and others fail. But mm -hmm. it's it's the first, you know, bit of um, suspension of disbelief that, that goes into the making of these films. Yeah, Blair Witch, for example, they made it like a psychological point out of this where they have an actual scene where Heather says, it's the only thing I have um, at this point. So... Like you're saying, she's sticking to something that sort of keeps her safe. Did you have yeah. any other strategies of um, like how to make things seem to be real? Did you have sort of like a game plan of um, things that you could do that would, um, um, you know, make it more authentic? Well, I knew that I wanted to have actors that could improvise. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we did the auditions, we would have them tell stories. And um, the mother... Um, Shirley McCullough was great. She actually had her own UFO experience uh, mm -hmm. in the Midwest and told it. And it was uh, fantastic. And at the end of it, I said, was that real? And she said, uh, if it'll get me the job. And I said, you have the job. I need to know. Is that real? And she goes, yes, that happened. Um, so it needed to be, it needed to feel like it was a family, a cohesive family that was broken, that had mm -hmm. issues. And so we talked about mom drinking, stuff like that. So the thing is, if you're going to do a found footage film, you got to focus on what where the drama is, not not what the plot of the movie is, but where is the the emotional drama? Mm -hmm. Because it's really a um, um, the alien stuff and everything is kind of the the red herring, if you will. 
but it's really at the end of the day, it's about this family. And so what do families do? How do they, how do they communicate? And so it was important when we improvised for the, the few sessions that we have, few rehearsals, that everyone talk over each other, that you could interrupt, you could have simultaneous conversations going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm you know, Robert Altman did that with MASH. He was one of the first people to do that. It had been done before, but, you know, kind of not to the extent, I guess, that that we did. Um, but I knew that that was going to be a signature and I could walk out of the room and then I could come back and I could I was free to go. So that was another kind of uh, signpost that this is a real event that's happening real time. And so like the phone rings, it goes over the phone or, you know, he's washing his hands, whatever, getting some water, all of that stuff. Um, and so the only thing that that was a little challenging was I had a headset on. And so I'm communicating to my assistant directors. Um, I'm saying, you know, so I've got my camera and I'm talking to the actors and then I would go like this and I would say, um, cue the lights. And so all of a sudden this mm-hmm. light would light would rake in the sky. Um, and then, you know, cue the aliens um, or I'm coming down the hallway. In fact, if you listen real close as I'm creeping down the hallway, you can hear, you can hear a little bit. <laughs> I'm be doing that, but I would say to underscore the reality, yeah, to answer your question, it was all just everyone feeling like they were in the moment between those people. And that was important. Don't mm-hmm. worry about where the camera is. In fact, when I did the remake for UPN, their first TV movie, um, I had to, I had to, we had this great actor that we wanted, but he, he could not turn his back to the camera. It just, he couldn't, couldn't do it. And I said, the camera will find you. You don't find the camera. Uh, so there is kind of like a, a a dance that goes on there. But I knew that those would be the things that would make the audience. So hopefully that's what people responded to. Mm-hmm. When you say improvisation, did some of those effects that you triggered, were those surprises for the actors? Did they know that it was coming? Like the lights or, you know, the alien at the window, stuff like that? Um, the only thing that they didn't know was that the aliens were going to come in at the end. Mm-hmm. And so when you hear that scream, the howling scream at the at the very end, that's real. <laughs> they freaked the shit out. I mean, like it went on and on. I dip out the music, but they were just, they did not expect that because I, I shot it um, linear and, and pretty much like all in this one take. And so um, it was this, you know, moment where they, where it was, t- everyone was tired and everything, and you know, and the shooting had gone on, and so, yeah, that that was uh, that I really wanted to get. So I wish I had the camera where you could actually see them, but you hear them. So that's mm-hmm. you know, that's part <laughs> of it too. <laughs> so what did the script look like? Was it like a treatment or a sort of like a game plan of stuff that you needed to get? Oh, I have a copy of the script right here. So here okay. it is. <laughs> There was no script. <laughs> it, it was a, it was a, um, like a five page outline, boy, maybe 10 at, at that, where it had like 10 or 20 scenes, all like just one paragraph each. This happens here. This happens here, etc. That was it. And so we went around my neighborhood in San Francisco, in the city, around the block. People must have thought we were nuts acting like we were seeing the ship and running back and improvising. So we did this a couple times 
just so we can get the rhythm. But once you get out in the woods and the only lights that are, are lit are the lanterns, you kind of, it's, it's not that hard to get into character. So mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to have enough range where, where all I had to do in order to advance the story was I would either say something that would let the actors know, oh, now we're doing the cake. Oh, mm-hmm. now we're doing goodbyes. And so I was kind of nudging along like, okay, it was time to go. So in in a way, it was like kind of, you know, being, um, you know, you're being an actor and a director simultaneously with the other one, with the other, you know, mm-hmm. actors and crew. And so the headset was for the crew and then the verbal cues were for the actors. So um, that was it. It was all gut instinct, you know, and and I got a chance to do some things different um, in the sequel or not the sequel, but the, the other version that we did for UPN, mm-hmm. like like I really wish that I had done a confessional where they set the camera down and do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did do that in the remake. And that was the first time that that had ever been done, that there had been a, a confessional. Um, and then I think Blair Witch a year and a half later when it came out, they had it in there and, and the last broadcast and some other things, but I wish that I had had that um, mm-hmm. uh, in there, but you hear him talk so much you, you kind of get it without actually having had the camera on him, I think. Yeah, that's true. Was there stuff that you shot and um, that didn't make it into the film? Or or was, was the, what was the ratio of, you know, the, the, the stuff that you shot and the stuff that ended up in the film? Sure. Um, so the first night that we shot the film, it was supposed to be a one-night shoot. And we underlit everything when they came back and so from the moment that the, that the brothers come back inside all of that was too dark and there mm-hmm. were really great magical moments um like the one moment that i just remember that i i wish i could go back and digitally clean up and 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 say but it was literally way too dark even for you know trying to be real and that was um uh jason's sister um or excuse me jason's girlfriend who was talking to Michelle, the little five-year-old girl, which is why they're having the birthday party. And, you know, they got lanterns going around the house. And she's talking about how when she was a kid, they were kind of poor. And so what they did is that when they were going to dress up their Barbies and stuff, they would take their socks and they would cut off the bottom, but have the elastic mm-hmm. part around, you know, the band. And so they would make this like tube tops and stuff, all this. Stuff. It was a great, just little moment. Mm-hmm hearing a story that I didn't write that she was pulling from her own, you know? So we ended up having to go back a second night, like a week later Mm. and to take it from the moment that we go in there. In fact, when you watch the movie, the lens goes from being wide lens to once we get inside, it goes to to being long lens. And that was because when I went to go in for the second take where we, we seamlessly made the seam from the first half, going out, seeing the ship and aliens and coming back, I banged into the camera or into the door as we opened the door. Mm-hmm. And so it compressed my lens. And so it, it jacked it all up. And so then I, I have to focus. So that's where you, you, you know, see it there. But um, so it was essentially done in two takes, the whole mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, I see. No pick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing because it's such a, like a tightly constructed film in a way. I mean, a lot of the found footage films have elements where they're just noodling around and, you know, you just spend time 
until something happens and in ufo abduction it's always you know you set up the scene and then shit starts happening and then you know there's one thing and the next thing and the next thing and so it's it's kind of breathless and it's that's amazing <laughs> well it's funny because um when we went to show it at fantastic fest for the 30th anniversary um uh with agfa i i told my girlfriend ali i said get aisle seats because i've not seen this film i've not seen it in 30 years um and I and I kept hearkening back to the casting director, hating on it. And I said, this could go bad. Like maybe these are just some film geeks that like the movie, but the audience, because it was a full house, they're not going to be so keen on it. And it's not going to hold up. And so she did. She got aisle seats so we could duck out in case it went bad. <laughs> and then it played. And what had happened was over the years, because of not just the fact that there had been other found footage films and people were used to that format, but the 80s, the stamp of the 80s made it very nostalgic and fun. And and the way that they treated each other, uh, there were so many great jokes that were kind of, to me, a little bit amusing. But at the time, it was, it was like it just seemed trivial. And now these were genuine laughs or unintentional laughs. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of kept the pace going at the beginning and then when the shit hits a fan and it keeps going it was just me thinking well that's what you do then this and that and that happens i mean if i could go back and redo it again i'll tell you what i would do i would i would have one of the brothers come back after they go out i'd mm -hmm. have one of them come back in like a fugue state mm -hmm. and have them just sit there and just be this creepy thing that's just you know you think oh there'd be little things like that mm -hmm. but you know, I've mentioned that before and, and other people have said, no, 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 it's better that they're gone because now you it's like 10 little Indians, you reduce it and everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was just more of things have to keep moving and the suspense. I mean, I'm I'm proud of the scene where Michael is creeping down the hallway and we know that we've got the body mm -hmm. in the back room. And what are we going to see? What's possibly going to be there? And is it going to jump out at us and everything? And, you know, we kind of subvert expectations. And so, um, yeah, so I think that that was, I'm glad that that, that pacing, um, you know, uh, kicked in. Um, but yeah, I'm again, I, I'm the last person to know. I mean, now I have objectivity back then I didn't. Mm. So it's, it's good to hear how people are responding to this. It's like, yeah, that's what I intended, but I wasn't sure that, I, <laughs> that we, we made it work, you know? So you did mention your friend at the at the premiere who came in late and kind of thought that this was real. Um, so what else did people think? What were the reactions in terms of the authenticity of it? Okay, so we went to, we did a road trip from San Francisco to LA to sell it to distributors. Everyone hated it. We had five meetings. And the fifth meeting, this guy goes, I'll take it. Literally our last meeting. And so we're feeling like, oh, wow, we scored. Can't believe it. Um, that's that's great. We drive back very happy. Uh, we send my main master, all of my artwork. And then I um, contact them a couple months later. And I go, so how are the sales? And he goes, oh, went up in flames. And I'm like, awesome. So what does that, you know, <laughs> is that that mean? How how big did it did it, you know, catch fire? How big? And he's like, no, it literally caught fire. Our distribution warehouse burned to the ground. 
So your movie's gone. And I thought it was a joke. And he goes, no, 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 I'm, I, it's gone. He says, I'm thinking about, you know, folding up the tent. Mm-hmm. And in the back of my mind, after the call, I'm thinking, was that done for insurance reasons? I don't know. I'm not saying, <laughs> but um, it was gone. And so um, I thought, well, that's the film gods telling me something. I guess I better move on. So I, I went on to doing crime reenactments um, in Los Angeles, working on shows. And then um, I get a call from this guy who later on went to jail because he was embezzling, um, doing something nefarious uh, within the UFO cult. And he said to me, he goes, um, hey, um, I heard that you might know where this footage came from. And I said, I'm sorry, who is this? And he goes, well, I just came back from the International UFO Congress Convention and your movie was shown there. And I'm like, okay. And he says, there were no credits on it. And I'm like, honey, he goes, you know how that might have happened? And I'm like, well, maybe a few mom and pop video stores got like an advanced screener of the mm-hmm. film. And he goes, well, I think someone edited this off and injected to the UFO community and has been purporting this to be real. And I said, dude, who the fuck are you? And he said, my name is blah, blah, blah. And he says, you may not know this, but it w- it brought the house down at the International UFO Congress Convention in Vegas. This is like 95, uh, I want to say, 93, 94. And, um, and he says, um, Unsolved Mysteries wants to do a story on it. So does Hard Copy and this Fox show called Encounters. And I laughed and I said, well, first of all, it wasn't found. We made it. So I guess Unsolved Mysteries is out. And this guy, he goes, well, not necessarily. And I go, yeah, it's not called Solved Mysteries. It's called Unsolved. He's like, all right, all right. So you want to do Hard Copy or Encounters? And so I ended up going on Encounters. And um, went there to debunk my own movie um, because a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force with 40 years of Air Force intelligence claimed it was authentic. Several UFO researchers claimed it was authentic. That wasn't the intention. It really wasn't. It was just to make a terrifying, terrifyingly real looking you know, account of what it would be like to be abducted as much as you can without actually being abducted. That was it. And so um, it um, that's when I knew that wow, this fired on all pistons, <laughs> that this really rocked. Um, so that's great. But I thought that was it. And I kind of, you know, had a moment where I, I went on the news locally and, uh, you know, the, the Japanese, they wanted to um, to show some of the footage and I agreed to that. And then they wanted to interview me. And, um, and so I was supposed to interview them, but they wanted to interview two of my actors. And so I thought, well, they're going to do an expose on how this came about. It turned out what they ended up doing. I wish I knew the names of these guys at the production company. Um, They ended up interviewing my actors and made them do the interview in character (laughs) so that they perpetuate the story. And they never interviewed me. Literally, I called the hotel room. They said, oh, they checked out. (laughs) So there have been some people that have been, you know, conspiring to have this be a conspiracy. Anyway, so... I think that's it. I had my 15 minutes of fame, time to move on. And I'm working on this Stephen J. Cannell crime series. And the head writer, uh, Paul Chitlick says, hey, I heard about your video. I want to see this. And I go, no, dude, it's handheld. It's shaky. It's everything that is that the trope that is found footage. 
but there was no term for it back then. I go, it's, it's, it's not, it's not the work I want to do now. I want to do slick Scorsese stuff. And he's like, shut up, just show it to me. So I give it to him and he watches it and he says, I can make, get us a, a TV movie deal with this. Hmm. And I said, sure. Okay. I want a story by credit. Um, you can write the teleplay and uh, I'll direct it. We'll produce it together by Paul. And so the next day he says, we have a meeting at Dick Clark Productions the following week. And we went in, showed them the six and a half minute segment from the Fox Encounters show, shook our hand. And that was it. And that was my first Hollywood deal. And so um, it was supposed to be made at Showtime that was put in turnaround and ended up being made at UPN as their first um, TV movie. And um, yeah. And so that's kind of how the the baton got passed from the first <laughs> scrappy little movie to this. It ended up being 1.25 million, but we shot it in Vancouver. So it was actually 1.7 million budget. Um, and we got the guy I was, because I was, I, I I had my first anxiety attack ever because I didn't know how to spend that much money because the original was made for so little. Mm. I'm like, what are we going to spend this on? Maybe we shoot it in a week instead of one night. Um, let's get the guys from the X Files to do the ship and aliens, but ultimately, which we did, and ultimately we we came in um, half a million under budget, which is the first TV movie uh, from according to my agent um, at the time uh, to ever <laughs> do that, and. Um, and uh, that was a little bit of a sordid tale. I'm sorry. I'm I'm rambling on. Um, but... <laughs> no, it's okay. It's perfect. I think this is the first time in the history of Hollywood that a director said, "Oh, this is way too much money that you're giving me." <laughs> yeah, literally. I went to therapy. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I've, I've got imposter syndrome. How do I spend this? I don't know. It's it's digital. It's video. Well, the rub was all of that went away when we finished shooting, and. Uh, everyone had been replaced at UPN. Everyone got fired. So we came back and we presented them their first TV movie that the network had agreed to do. And the new regime looked at this and went, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Literally, they were throwing food, I heard, at the screen when they watched it, laughing their asses off, going, 20-minute takes, digital? What's digital video? What the hell is that? I don't know any of these actors. And... There's no music that, yeah, fire these guys. So we got fired. They brought in um, this woman who came on board and she added a few more interviews because there was interviews cut, mm -hmm. shot a bunch of them. And then she added a few more, cut it down from 90 minutes to an hour. And um, and uh, in fact, she tried to get credit for everything. And we had to have the guild. I'm in the director's guild. My partner is in the writer's guild. So went after her and, and her credit went away. And um, so we retained that, but it didn't matter. We were considered pariahs there. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and so the joke was on them because it it aired and it got them the highest ratings for Tuesday prime time. Um, so much so that they had to put more footage in and air it again. And it did even better. And then the head of the network said, that show will never be on this fucking network again. Hmm. And you go, well, why would he do that? This is good for them. Well, because he had nothing to do with it. It was the previous regime. And so the tradition in Hollywood is if you take over a studio or a production company that you shit and you distance yourself hmm. from the other stuff and you make sure that, that the new people who hired you have confirmation that thank God, you know, we're here to save the network. And so, um, 
um, but it never played on the network again. In fact, it's never received a, a Blu-ray or DVD release. I think Shout Factory talked to us briefly about it, um, but it still has it. And I, I've considered trying to buy the rights and, you know, get that mm. back. Um, one other interesting note was that because it was found footage, when you shoot these things and they're happening real time, it goes by much faster. So if I'm doing a scene where someone walks in and screams something, hits someone, and then leaves, you've got the wide shot, you got the close-ups, you've got mm. the inserts, you have a moment of tense, blah, 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 and that's it. Well, real time, it goes by in a matter of seconds. So while we were preparing to shoot the film, a week and a half before we were going to shoot it, Dick Clark Productions went and had the script timed by doing it the way we were going to mm. shoot it. And they came back and they said, your script at 90 pages is coming in at 45 minutes. And so that was a, a terrifying thing. And they said, we've committed mm. to UPN for a 90 minute movie, even though they ended up cutting the whole thing down. Uh, there was a foreign version that stayed 90 minutes and that one's done, done, done well. So I quickly came up with a whole new outline of 20 new scenes. Literally it's a whole new movie because we had to have it be twice as long. I gave half the scenes to Paul, and then uh, I wrote the other half, including the the confessional stuff, and because uh, that wasn't in the original. And so we we made this thing, and and it ended up, um, you know, getting all packed in there. But um, so that one comes out, and they have the first online poll that says, "Do you believe this video is real?" And I shit you not. There were end credits that said Alien 1 played by so-and-so, Alien 2 played by so-and-so. 49% 49% believed it was real. So that is kind of telling. And it's telling about our country, right? <laughs> How bifurcated we are. Um, so that was pretty alarming. And so because of that, there started to be, when the internet kicked in, this is, this is again, this is 98 um, the internet starts to kick in and then all these conspiracies come about the film and how I work for the government and how I was hired to remake the original <laughs> to throw people off that. In fact, the, the craziest story was when I went to the International UFO Congress Convention because I was invited to come back for the, the anniversary and speak, which I was a little terrified to do because I thought, well, what if they, you know, hunt me down because I'm this, you know, this person who um, who fooled everyone supposedly, and and they weren't. They were great. They were terrific. UFO community is fantastic. The best people. So I go there and I speak, and this guy says, "Hey, can I can I buy you lunch?" And I'm like, "Yeah, okay." And so he buys me lunch. He says, "Look, I need you to talk to me straight." And I go, "Yeah, dude, what?" So there was a mayor, Alioto, Joseph Alioto in the '70s, and I go, "Yeah, your last name is Alioto." I go, "Uh huh." He says, so this is what I heard. And please be honest with me. And I go, bro, I'm going to be honest with you. What is it? He says, um, so this is what I heard, that he was your father and that the government got to him to get you to make this remake and to throw people off the original. And you had nothing to do with the original. And I said, first of all, you're not paying for lunch. I am, because that's the best fucking story. I've ever heard. <laughs> and the thing is, 
I would think that he would be elated. Like, I don't have to worry about this conspiracy. I can take this one off my plate because there's a shitload more UFO conspiracies. He was bummed. Like, I remember tapping him on the back going, it's okay, man. It was just a movie. Wasn't meant to be. It's okay. So um, anyway, it's it's still out there. I mean, I, I do debunk it on occasion. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to, you know, shit on anyone's um imagination and, and getting that flourishing but but i don't want anything that i'm doing to hurt the actual you know serious researchers that are out there that are looking you know combing over all the evidence and stuff um i have behind the scenes stills to prove it. this this was just a 24 year old you know desperate attempt to uh make his first movie yeah, I've seen, I've, I've even seen comments on the internet where you, and I think one video where you presented it at a film festival and one of the comments said, yeah, but those can't be actors because the reactions are so real. So the tape must be real. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I received a few, more than a few emails and I kept them over the years. Um, and my two favorite ones, one is um, how do you explain if this isn't real, how do you explain that my mother knows this woman who is friends with the woman who was kidnapped by the aliens in the movie? And I emailed back and I said, I literally cannot explain how your mother knows someone who knows a fictional character who was kidnapped in a movie. <laughs> then the other one was, Hey man, can you send me a copy of your movie? Because my girlfriend gets really horny when she's scared and your movie scared the hell out of me. So please send it to you. I need you to understand how important this is for me. She gets and kept going on and on for like two paragraphs. So I had to send him a copy of the movie. <laughs> that was very helpful. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great aphrodisiac. I apparently. That's yeah. the first thing that I thought when I saw it. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, put on the very white music. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cozy atmosphere and people cuddling together and everything. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the cacophony of aliens in the background play. Sure. <laughs> I, I kind of love the fact that this found footage film sort of became like a found footage object in and of itself in a way. And um, I was just wondering while you were talking about how, you know, how it got rejected and how the reactions were so strong where people said, I fucking hate it. Um, was there a point when you just said, oh, you know, fuck it, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to give up on filmmaking. No, because I knew that this was so weird. And, and again, in my brain, gimmick it, it's funny right after i made it i met it with a buddy of mine and he and i used to do wedding videos and so that definitely influenced me definitely and um and he said do you have any idea what you've done and i said yeah i know what i've done i've i've gotten myself into being calling myself a filmmaker and he goes no he says you did something and he was using the g word genius and I'm going, dude, you have to, you haven't seen the film. You have to understand. It's just this, this gimmicky. That's the G word for me is gimmicky. And he was like, no, this is like crazy original, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I, I didn't see it as that. And I still kind of feel a little bit like Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> like I got dragged through this thing by this one vehicle that I made it. But, um, 
No, I I didn't really. Um, I mean, I certainly appreciate it now, but um, I, it didn't it didn't wipe out my dreams at all because I was like, this is a separate thing. This is a weird mm-hmm. kind of uh, first pancake, you know, thing. <laughs> you know, in America we have that. You don't eat the first pancake; you throw it out. That's kind of what this was, and so um, I I was you know trying to get my first film, you know first official film going um after that and so that was you know that's where i was going to make my mark because clearly no one wanted this and so it just kind of ticked a box where i could say kind of that i had done my first film mm-hmm. yeah so it wasn't discouraging i i you know so then shortly after alien abduction comes out the remake um there's this little film called blair witch project and that sort of puts a name onto the whole aesthetic and that sort of starts a whole new wave of similar films. How did all of that change the perception of um, UFO abduction and alien abduction? Well, I did hear this, and this is from the uh, former head of TV at, at UPN. Um, he, he said that, and I'll say, I'll call the guy out, the guy who hated the movie at network, at network who, who came on board there, his name was Dean Valentine. And uh, he was a guy that said, this will never be on this fucking network again. So after Blair Witch comes out, he said, oh, shit, I guess these guys knew um, uh, knew what they were doing. So that was that was great validation that that had got back to us. Um, and um, there, there was also a little tinge in me of going, God, I wish I had thought bigger. Mm-hmm. In, in the sense that I wish that I had submitted it to Sundance. I had submitted to some film festivals, but again, it was 10 years before that. So they just still would have thought that this was just nonsense. What was great about Blair Witch was the campaign, the online campaign. Um, I I thought that they did several things super cool that were improvements. The one thing that I didn't really care for was the shaky cam because people, teenagers, college kids know how to hold a camera steady. Mm -hmm. And so the whole thing was nonsense when you see my film he's a six-year-old he's holding the camera as steady as he can you know it was never a conceit to to you know to keep underscoring this is you know shaky but running through a forest with vertical lines and stuff it was just uh you know too much i thought but um but they succeeded in so many other ways and then the other films that that came along um you know there was cloverfield which is a little tough because um, J.J. Abrams' partner, I had shown my uh, remake to. Oh, okay. And, and I was trying to get work directing on one of their episodic shows that J.J.'s company, Bad Robot, was doing. And his partner really liked it and said, this is crazy. And I he had just seen clips of it on my reel. And he says, can you send me the actual movie? And I go, yeah. And I sent it to him. And then I hadn't heard from him. And then maybe a year later, um, I don't know how much later I went to a sneak preview um, of Cloverfield and I'm looking at this and I'm going, wow, it's a bunch of people getting together for this function. There's a blackout. Mm-hmm. It's happening outside. They're running around. And I, and I was a little bit irked because I thought if, if they saw this and got inspired that we have to come up with a way to do something. And they didn't reach out to me. That's, I kind of call bullshit on that, but you can't copyright found footage, Mm. Um, you know, and then, and then the rest of it, 
you know, the other things that have that have come out that have, you know, done well, um, I'm I'm always rooting for like paranormal activities. Mm-hmm. I love those movies. The first one was great. The one where they had the fan, where they put the camera on the fan and it goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. And we see in the background, um, one of the characters is is working the garbage disposal and stuff. It's going back and forth. Terrifying. So I feel like it's something that is a new narrative, which is the first new narrative since the advent of cross-cutting, I would mm-hmm. say, you know, train robbery way back in the silent uh, eras. So um, I think that it's it's been taken as so many fun, you know, new levels that, um, you know, um, that I feel like, I mean, truth be told, there was a third version of my movie. Oh, okay. That, that was um, picked up, but I wrote it on spec. Um, it was um, picked up by Insurge, which was Paramount's low-budget division, micro-budget divisions, which did the paranormal films with Jason Blum. And um, we had a, a negative pickup deal with them. And um, and so the executive who was put in charge of getting it made was insistent that we get one of the line producers, production managers from one of the paranormal films because he didn't feel very confident and was like, you know, even though I told him I've done this twice, we don't need to have someone because that those specific people, and there's only a couple of them are on other gigs and stuff. This is an offer now we need to move on it. So literally right before one year, it took a year for this guy to try to get this, these guys available. And at that, and about 11 months in a year in, in surge folded. And so it never got made. So, um, but I do have that, that script and, um, and it's kind of like things that I wanted to do to take it to the next level, stuff like that. And and maybe someday, you know, it'll happen. I love the idea of a trilogy. I just think Mm -hmm. that's uh, really cool. But um, yeah, so I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to see it continuing and people working in that. And every time, like I've talked to Jason Blum before and he's like, you can't, you know, uh, found footage is dead. And then all of a sudden, you know, unfriended comes out mm. and it's like, which, which they did, but it was a twist on it. So people are still finding new twists on it, new angles to get in um, to it. And from the emails that I get or, or IMs that I get, people still love it. They love the genre. And so, um, you know, I hope it, you know, continues and, uh, and that filmmakers find new, new ways to get into it. But it, I think, um, I think it's with us. I think it's here to stay primarily because people are used to watching reality TV. Mm -hmm. TV is, is found footage without the footage being found. It's all engineered, man. The Kardashians Mm -hmm. and all that shit's fake. Yeah. Yeah. People are used to seeing that type of follow doc. So I think it's just part of, um, you know, the, the, the viewing um, taste at this point. Also, the technology, I think, has become so so common these days. I mean, everybody has a camera in their pockets through their, their phone um, and they're recording just everything about their lives, just uh, banal encounters and their food <laughs> and, and stuff like that. Um, and people are so used to seeing that kind of material. So I think that's, 
it's almost a very natural way of uh, being told about other people's lives. And so um, I, I think it's a genre that's here to stay, definitely. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's interesting because I sometimes bemoan the fact that DSLR cameras were not around when mm -hmm. I was, you know, we shot this and um, we wanted to shoot it on like the Betamax, but we, it, it takes place in, in 1983, which is when Betamax came out the first that year, uh, consumer video camera, but we shot it on eight millimeter video. And it was the first L eight millimeter video with stereo. We were all excited, you know, um, film look, which was this thing where you could take digital and you can make it look like film that didn't come until uh, a few years later as well. So if you wanted to make a, an official movie back then, um, you would have to throw down major bucks on 16 mm. millimeter or 35. So I, 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 I do wish that I had DSLR cameras back then. Cause I would have, I wouldn't, you know, I, I would have shot it and, you know, my first film would, would not have been that. And so that's the other side of it. And so in, in other ways, I'm glad that DSLRs weren't around because I never, ever would have made um, the McPherson tape, you know, UFO abduction, never would have made that. It wouldn't have come up. I'm, I'm going to put on a tripod and I'm going to do it, you know, uh, properly. So in a way, you know, you use what you have. And so I kind of feel like, um, you know, that, that elicits, that creates much more creativity, you know, what you don't have than what you do have. Yeah, I also think the, the 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 crappy quality of those consumer cameras back then, I mean, that adds to the authenticity. I mean, the idea of something that was just recorded by accident by an amateur who's not a professional filmmaker, I mean, that's something that almost has to look bad by definition. I mean, if it's pristine HD quality and everything, then you sort of start suspecting that, yeah, you know, I think there is somebody who's who's uh, directing all of this and and staging all of this. Yeah, that's where like Chronicle and some of the other higher end ones um, like Project X, that's where they don't work as well. In fact, when we were shooting the remake, I begged the network to let me shoot one take all with a regular home video camera. And they said, no. They said, this is TV. Everything gets elevated in TV. So the lighting, it's overlit. Mm. It's horribly overlit. Um, it's supposed to be a blackout and it's brighter than if you just had the lights on. Um, it, I, I would have had it been much more grimy and analog because that's what you want. You don't want to shoot digital. You want it to be analog. So um, anyway, that was um, all those things that were considered negatives at the time are now pluses and, and give it mm. an aesthetic that you're right, that time stamps it. So which one of the two versions is, is your favorite of the two? Or is that an unfair question to ask? No, I I don't make uh, any bones about it. The first one is definitely, for me, the better one. Mm. Um, and the one that I prefer because I didn't have network influence on it. Um, it is much more fluid. The other one was so scripted. Uh, the actors did a fantastic job. Nothing that I would detract from them. However, because we had to script out everything, it just didn't have that immediacy. I mean, people mm -hmm. were talking to each other a little bit, but it was just, it was too much. There's something you get from flying by the seat of your pants and someone screws up, someone bangs himself going out a door, little things like that. 
um, that you you don't get. Um, and so it felt more contrived, mm-hmm. if I'm going to be honest about it, than than the original. I know that there is a, a big, you know, fan base of kids who grew up watching the UPN one because that one was seen by millions more than than have seen um, the the OG. But yeah, they they are they're very protective. Like you know, I remember I, I had one person who told me that he still sleeps with the lights on because of the film. And I said, wait, how old were you when you saw this? And he goes, oh, I was nine years old. And I'm like, what the fuck? What, what's wrong with your parents? It says, there's a disclaimer. It says the footage you're about to see contains disturbing and graphic images mm. and your parents. And he goes, yeah, man, but it was great because now I'm into horror movies and I'm into this and that mm. because of this. And and no, I, lo- I love being scared. I'm like, all right, well, you know, you go. I did have one woman who said that she almost had a miscarriage while wow. watching because some of these people, you know, people don't always start a show at the beginning. They mm. come into it. And so there was no, you know, disclaimer. And so it was kind of like War of the Worlds. And so it was a really weird social experiment in a way. But um, anyway, yeah. So I would say the original one, just because it, it it was much more what I intended it to be, which was, you know, this kind of um, real-time, unbridled, shit is you know happening at that moment mm. doesn't have that, that that nice sheen to it so i would you know definitely say that in fact that the third version if i do a third version would would embrace the analog and would embrace more of that but it would have a couple more little surprises and stuff uh mm-hmm. you know in there but you know I'm, I'm proud of both of them because uh you know i got a chance to work with uh some really terrific people but um my first child is my favorite man. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I prefer actually about the original is that it's more vague in terms of uh, what the aliens are or if they present a threat. Because I mean, in the in the remake, it's fairly clear that they are dangerous. I mean, one of the family members actually dies during the film. Whereas in the original, I'm kind of thinking like, hey, maybe they're just visitors. Maybe they just want to say hello. I don't know. <laughs> and, and the family's scared as we all would be. Um, and that makes it more interesting, I think. Oh my God, that's a really good point. I never thought about that before. Huh. Yeah, honestly, I never thought about that before. We don't see what happens um, at the end of, of the first one, it, playing out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that one was also inspired by the Kelly Hops- Hopkinsville um, incident that happened, I believe, in the 60s or 50s. And it was this uh, home in Kentucky that that was invaded by mm-hmm. they, these aliens, and they're on the roof and everything. And so they had to put them on the roof. So that's why there's a scene with that. Which, by the way, if you see the movie Signs, mm-hmm. it's, it's about a single parent, and he's got, you know, three kids. Okay, and um, and the aliens come and they live out in the woods, and the alien sneaks in through the second floor. Hmm. <laughs> i got a lot of that i got a lot oh did, did you were you inspired by uh signs i'm like no dude look at the dates <laughs> <laughs> but it's really that's a really good point man um yeah because um renee gets hit whatever sometimes i, I mix up names from the first and the second film um she got hit 
with a with a, a an orb in the chest and then she dies mm-hmm. and yeah that's a really good point see now i like the first one even better now yeah wow <laughs> yeah that's a really good point i like that that's cool was there something from both movies that you took to the other films that you did? I mean, I know you did a lot of documentaries, for example, um, and, and you've done other stories, um, which also have a little bit of, you know, film in them, people filming stuff or people talking about films and things. So were those an influence on your other stories? Probably. Definitely subconscious, right? Um, subconsciously so. Um, uh, let's see. I... Well, I did this film uh, called Portal. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2019. Um, I didn't write the script. That was written by um, Peter Dukes. But there were definitely things that I could, that I was comfortable with being in that space. Um, um, some of the little jokes and stuff, there were some things I, I added that might have been pointing to that. But I mean, you know, it's a ghost hunting crew that is you know it's meta it's mm. i guess you could say that my original one was meta um but that one was really meta um so yeah that probably affected it i'm trying to think of the other things i just made a new film that, uh, the last podcast yeah the last podcast and i'm I'm combing through it right now and going is there anything that i took from that um, well, you'll see in the background when he's doing his podcast, there's a poster. Oh, okay. Not a big one. There is a poster of UFO abduction mm-hmm. <laughs> in the background. Um, yeah, I'll have to think about that. I'm, I'm sure it's it's affected me. I mean, where it really affected me was performance-wise. Um, that was kind of my beginning of a love for actors being able to feel comfortable around a set be able to um, to have real moments, bits of business. I think that that was my first flexing of that muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became a tool that I put in my toolbox for sure, where actors could talk over each other and and they could you know um, be allowed to be on their own and not have to be forced to you know. Because later on, I was really forcing actors. You come over here and then you land here, this and that, mm-hmm. and that's artificial you know so it taught me to listen to the actors more than anything so i would say that 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 influenced the performances going forward for sure Mm -hmm. yeah and there's also la dicks where people talk about making movies or they want to use real life to sell screenplay and well obviously it has yourself playing one of the guys so again it's somebody who's trying to break into the film business so i i I see all kinds of like they may be vague but i see some connections i think in that in that sense yeah we don't talk about that movie um okay (laughs) but it's it's my girlfriend's least favorite film uh we joke about it um it was (laughs) it was i did that film because i wanted to kind of experience what it would be like to to um you know, for me, it's all about the actors. You know, mm-hmm. when I think of a movie, what is the most important thing, the thing that audiences take in? First of all, it's performance. Mm-hmm. A really good actor can deliver shit dialogue. It's just a fact. You can go through history and you can see, wow, that's really, you know, weak. Um, and then, 
you know, story is second and then third is the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was a good way for me to be able to kind of, you know, learn more about acting firsthand. Um, but, you know, I'm going back to Portal. I wrote this little thing at the end. My daughter is is in the uh, in the movie at the very end where there's a new mm-hmm. group of um, of uh, ghost hunters. Mm-hmm. We get the idea if there's going to be a sequel, these are the guys who are going to be in it. And so I gave my daughter a line in it that I wrote that says um, that they call her over to look at this video. And mm-hmm. the video is of the actual characters in the movie. And they posted the video of them being attacked by these ghosts. And so she comes over and looks at it. And they said, oh, take a look at this. And she goes, ugh, I hate found footage movies and walks away. (laughs) Definitely. um, Yeah, me making commentary on that. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. So you're right. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know it was your daughter. I mean, that adds even another layer to the whole thing. (laughs) That was my Ruby. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Taking a a shot at her dad. (laughs) Um, and you're also returning, I think, to the world of aliens with a documentary I've seen. Um, I've seen the announcement for. Yeah. So um, when I went to the International UFO Congress Convention for the 30th anniversary, it would have been the 25th anniversary there because it had been out for five years by the time they got it. So for the 25th anniversary, that would have been, this was 2018. I had never gone. I think I went to one UFO, small little gathering um right after during the making of um ufo abduction and um and i had pointed out that there was they were showing this footage of this green orb going around this uh plane and i raised my hand and i said um you know i'm a a filmmaker and that's a lens flare and you see how it's an aberration from the lens flare and you see that's green and then how it goes away and comes back and they all looked at me like I was a heretic and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so I scuttled out of there. And so when I was um, invited to come and speak there and give like a TED talk to a thousand people, uh, I said, look, I'm I'm a little bit nervous about this because I take my work serious, but I don't take myself serious. So I'm going to be taking the piss out of myself a lot. <laughs> so people need to have levity. And if they don't, this is going to go bad. And he goes, no, 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 they're great. They're terrific. And uh, to his word, um, talking about Alejandro Rojas and Karen Brard, um, who who own that conference. Um, they assured me and I went there and they were terrific. And, and I met a wide spectrum of people. You know, I met someone who was really pissed off at his parents because they had done plastic surgery in his ears. So they took his Vulcan ears and made them more human when he was a kid. So you had that side of the spectrum. Okay. (laughs) You had professors at, um, you had professors at, uh, you know, Albany and Montana Tech who believe that there was something here. And so after talking to these guys, uh, wandering around at, at the convention, then I went to this other one called Alien Con in Pasadena. I met enough people that I was kind of shocked and thought, wow, there's there's some credibility here. There's some real science work being done here. And I don't know how to make a UFO documentary, and I would never want to make just that. I would I would make a science doc, mm-hmm. um, a subject about UFOs or aliens. And, um, and so I hit on the idea of doing that. And I thought, 
because I've done documentaries, one and two hour specials for like, you know, A&E, Bravo, Fox, etc. I thought if I were to take the aesthetic of that and bring it into this, it would elevate it and to look at it in a serious hypothetical way, mm-hmm. which would allow me to get people like um, Professor Michio Kaku and um, SETI and NASA and stuff. People that never talk, you know, from Harvard and stuff, never talk about this to be able to get them to open a discussion and get into it. And what came out of that were some really profound thoughts on the subject and some new theories came out of it. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do a 90 minute movie. It'll be like 15 interviews, 20 interviews, and that's it. Five years later, um, it's a three part series with a separate standalone feature film. Wow. And um, the, the standalone feature film is called The Experiencers. And that's all about people who have had abduction experiences. And I bring in people from, uh, again, different disciplines. I have people who are experiencers, as alien abductees like to be called now. Um, And then uh, some people who have never had experiences before, but discovered that they did. And we we find this out Mm -hmm. real time. Um, And then also, you know, I have an Oxford professor, best-selling author, who's talking about, you know, the possibility of what these things could be, you mm-hmm. know? So it, it, it sucked me into the UFO rabbit hole for half a decade. And this week we're about to go out with a three-part series uh, to the market. And um, so hopefully next year, all of those are going to go out, but um, I needed to kind of cleanse the palate after five years of documentaries, mm-hmm. um, 60 interviews later, five continents later, I just wanted to do a film. And so um, before the the um, actor strike hit. And uh, so I made this film last June. And uh, yeah, that one's called Last Podcast. And it's a dark comedy, Supernatural, mm-hmm. um, about a young, ambitious uh, podcaster who uh, debunks the supernatural. Yeah, there's no parallels with yeah, me, right? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, God, I'm so guilty. And uh, I was just going to say, I hope this isn't the last podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for you and mine. Um, and so what happens is he discovers that there may actually be an afterlife, but it's not what we think it is. Mm-hmm. So it's a dark comedy, very much like an A24 type vibe. And so um, that's getting wrapped up uh, now. So hopefully that'll also be coming out next year. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so um <laughs> the next one of the next two projects I do is 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 going to be possibly yeah I'm painting a brush on myself um alien related but Ooh. it's going to be fictional okay and so um yeah I mean I've I I I just don't work in the genre I know that sounds like I do um I wrote a Beatles biopic I've um got a western and so there's other things that I I do in that but right now I seem to be doing um well in the ufo alien lane so <laughs> i might stay in there for a few more miles mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, branch out but um i do enjoy the fantastical i can't help it it's Ooh. um you know it's it's a good distraction with what's going on but um i will say that everything that i'm doing now i'm really working on it having kind of uh without it being blatant and morality you Ooh. know behind it um the movie, the last podcast is about, um, addiction, you know, being mm-hmm. addicted to subscribers and the stuff that people do for that. 
And then the uh, the three part series is about you know our environment and mm. the 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 um, the experiencers feature doc is really about um, having tolerance for others, whether they believe in stuff or not, doesn't matter. Mm. You know, the analogy that I that I kind of use, and I've met a few of these people, and um, and it's a little bit freaky. I mean, I, I I will tell you that I went to a few meetings of an an, an abductee support group. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, this will be entertaining. And so I went there and there's 15 of these people and they introduce themselves around the table. One of them gave a TED talk. Another one is a um, supervisor for Homeland Security. One's a major in the army. Another mm -hmm. one is a chiropractor, doctor, architect. These are very common. And um, so I went there and I saw all these people. And because I've worked 20 years on crime shows, I've interviewed, you know, um, convicts and and fbi people so you develop a pretty good bullshit meter and i didn't get one blip the whole night so it was pretty terrifying for me <laughs> and i was asking very pointed questions and stuff and and there's certain telltales that you can tell when someone is lying but these people legitimately are suffering from some form of ptsd mm -hmm. and uh, uh and you can see it and that's what you know professor john mack at harvard said that these people you can't fake ptsd you just can't. And so there's no other traumas in their life except for what they're purporting. So anyway, I went to this thing and saw these people and came home and was um, it was very disturbing. And I thought, you know, it's interesting if I were to say to you, um, hey, dude, I need to tell you, Christian, this terrible thing happened. I was um, abducted. And you said to me, oh, really? So was it a white or was it a black van? Were the windows blocked out? Did they use tape or rope? Ha, ha, ha. But if I say, you know, this thing happened and it was, I don't know what it was. And you were to say, oh, really? Was it a flying saucer? Was it a triangle? Did they have big eyes? You know, did they have an anal probe? You know, you could do all that. So I thought regardless of whether this happened in the real world, are in a, in a world that they are experiencing, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So we should have tolerance for these people and getting to know some of these these people. And they, they're from all over the, you know, the world. This isn't relegated to just the United States. I thought that's an interesting phenomenon. Again, it doesn't matter that it might not even happen in the physical world, whether it's happening in a in a mental world um, or spiritual world, whatever. We need to to be kind, period. Ridiculing mm -hmm. anything. Is, is just uh, kind of insidious at this point. And so um, so that became, you know, the bigger purpose for doing these these documentaries. But, um, you know, I, I'm thinking that, um, you know, I, I'm excited to be back in doing movies. I don't think I'll be doing another documentary on this subject unless a UFO crashes in my backyard. <laughs> then maybe I'll break out my camera. <clears throat> but I won't do it handheld. I'll get my tripod or my... Mm -hmm and i'll shoot it really nice and beautiful <laughs> <laughs> and then people are going to say it's fake <laughs> that's true just because of that <laughs> damn you're right okay all right i'll shoot it vertical <laughs> <laughs> no, but all of those projects sound really intriguing so I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing all of those the documentary the series and the horror movie sounds amazing i've seen that mick garris is in the movie um in yes, the podcast movie. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of Mick. He's his company is called Nice Guy Productions. He is the nicest guy. 
Um, just a sweetheart. Sometimes when you're making a movie, you just want to have someone's energy on set. And that was the last day that we were shooting. And Mick came out there, we're shooting in a bar. And I and I wrote this scene for um, Mick to be this um, insulting bartender and to yell at this customer. And uh, so it was it was really fun. Again, he's the nicest guy. And so it was like, yeah, oh, cleans up a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, no, love Mick. And then uh, Dave Foley um, mm -hmm. is in the hall is also in it. He's a buddy of mine. He's great. He's terrific. Um, what's really going to be the standout of, of the film is the lead actor, um, Eric Tabak. Um, he is amazing. And, and so is Gabe, uh, Gabriel Rush, who um, who plays it's it's kind of these two lead roles. Uh, Maya Hudson, who plays the girlfriend, is also terrific. But uh, Eric and Gabe, especially um, our lead, Eric, Eric is uh, going to blow up. He's got this like mm -hmm. young, he's like 26 years old. He's got this Tom Hanks quality, this charm that is his own. Funny, his timing is impeccable. He came from um, BuzzFeed and Yes Theory, where he had generated half a billion uh, views. Wow. Um, he's he's just funny as shit. Um, you know, Tarantino talks about how Samuel Jackson, Sam Jackson, he, his dialogue is meant for that. The way that he mm -hmm. reads it, delivers it, is the perfect cadence. I found that with Eric. His... Mm -hmm way that he delivers my stuff is kind of like um uh just in the pocket every single time so i'm i'm really really excited about what this you know could do for his career he's he is just a powerhouse funny as shit smart there were a lot of lines that he was um improvising <laughs> that were just uh fantastic and so um um but it's it's a really fun you know the vibe is very much like an american werewolf in london Mm. to give wow. an idea so there's some fucked up shocking things in it so <laughs> okay yeah that's that sounds cool it sounds like an amazing film really looking forward to seeing it yeah yeah we're looking forward to uh bringing it out we're going to be submitting to all the festivals right now mm. yeah that's always a huge new step and it's the moment when you think you're done your job is done and then there's this whole new job of you know putting it out there and yeah <laughs> dude we, 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 they've there have been talk for years about it democratize democratizing the market so that a, a filmmaker can make a movie like if there was a portal where you would go that it would be just found footage films but it wouldn't be someone controlling it and saying if you want your found footage film on my you know found footage network you come here mm -hmm. just one would go through and there'd be like a main hub like a tv guide where you can go and then you could you would have a, 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 an opportunity to make films of all size and shapes and stuff. And it would be based on the story mm. you know, and the quality of, of what was made. Um, but it isn't yet. And so, you know, a film is only half finished when you're done only half. And that's being generous. It's not until you sell it and a distributor picks it up mm. that sees the light of day. And so, um, you know, that's, um, that's the way it is but um you know i'm feeling pretty optimistic about uh this one um uh because it's um you know it's topical you know mm -hmm. the last podcast and real briefly the reason why this movie even got made 
was um, a buddy of mine who has a reputable UFO podcast called Podcast UFO. His name is Martin Willis. It's a great podcast. It's fun. Um, he had to go in for uh, open heart surgery. And he asked me, because I've been a guest on his before, he asked me to fill in as the host for a month. Mm-hmm. I did that. And it was fun. And I enjoyed it. And unfortunately, I was encouraged to start my own podcast. So I went down that rabbit hole for six months. Mm-hmm. And because I, I wanted to make sure that if I do it, it's going to be done right and this and that. And then my girlfriend looked over at me one night. And she goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm doing research. This is research for me to get my podcast. And, and she goes, no, no, why? And I go, well, because it's going to be this fun thing that I do. And she goes, yeah, it doesn't look very fun. <laughs> and I went, yeah, this hasn't been fun. And I stopped right there. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, God, I, I just lost six months of my life like before I even got off the runway, because as you know, you don't just dive into it. First of all, you do it because you love to do it. And even if it's for a few people, that's all you do it. And then if people catch on, it has its own karma. It'll do, it'll do its thing. Well, I was trying to skip all of that. And, and so I thought, well, I'm going to write a character who's all about getting those subscribers. And so that's actually mm. where the last podcast but of course it gets infused with other things that i've had and you know the debunking and and all that you know stuff yeah but you know it's interesting the numbers are staggering um there is uh half a billion podcasts in the world wow and every year <laughs> five million new podcasts show up <laughs> that's insane it's insane good <laughs> lord yeah but I could never settle on a podcast because I love music. I'm a really crappy drummer. Um, so I love music, love filmmaking. I dig the supernatural. So I don't know how you would would do that. I guess Joe Rogan gets away with it. He can have all these you know people on. And um, but I would rather listen to podcasts than than listen to myself on one. So <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole preparation, the whole six months were sort of research for the film in a way. Indirectly. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Then it, then it flowed really fast. <laughs> <laughs>